So, well, it's good to be here with you this morning to worship and to look into God's Word. We have begun a study on 1 Thessalonians, and so you can turn there in your Bibles. And we talked last week, just to catch you up a little bit of how, how this new church got started um, in the city of Thessalonica under the Apostle Paul's ministry with his team. And I actually wrote an introduction to the book for you in the back. If you haven't picked one up, you can, and you can read through that. It'll give you more of a background of understanding of what's actually taking place or what took place here in Thessalonica. So Paul and his team, you know, they arrived brand new in the city. Uh, they'd come over from across the sea, and, uh, and they are in Thessalonica at, mi- at mo- well, minimum three weeks and at most three months. It was a very, very short a duration that they were there, but we studied last week in chapter 1 that the gospel very powerfully worked in an unusual way, even for Paul and his team as they were starting this church in Thessalonica. In fact, it was so powerful that it made a lot of people mad, and so the unbelieving Jews gathered together this, uh, this mob in the city made up of a bunch of worthless characters, as the Scripture says, and to drive them out because they're jealous of the success of the gospel and the transformation that's actually taking place in their city and among these people. And so the opposition is so strong that not only do they they chase them out of their city, they follow them to the next city in Berea and chase them out of that city as well. And, And then they begin this malicious smear campaign back in the hometown of Thessalonica to try to discredit the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the gospel message and to try to destroy the church that they had just started should be pretty easy to do because it's a brand new church and people are still struggling to figure out what everything means and what all the application of the gospel might be. And so you think about the smear campaign that was going on that the apostle will be addressing, but they would probably be saying things to people in Thessalonica like, you know, see, just look at, look at him. He ran away. Paul ran away. He's an insincere man. I mean, he's just came here preaching something we'd never heard before anyway about some Jesus guy who's going to be the king. And somehow he died and rose from the dead. I mean, what a bunch of foolishness. And so and he took off because he doesn't really care about you. He just came here like everybody else comes here to preach in our city because they wanted to get our money. They want to get our women. They want to gain power over us. And so as soon as, you know, we make life a little hard for him, what does he do? He just tucks his tail and runs to the next city. He's more concerned about himself than he is about you. You know, you think about the kinds of things I might be saying. It goes on and on. These opponents... <clears throat> We're probably succeeding to some degree because smear campaigns are very effective. Uh, Propaganda works. And uh, even in the church, I mean, some of these young new believers are probably discussing some of the things that are being said and wondering, well, is that true? And maybe questioning Paul's sincerity and the team and their motives. But, of course, eventually Timothy comes back. He was was left, he was sent back, and then he comes back to meet Paul down uh, where he's staying down the coast. And uh, overall, the report is actually pretty good. And so when we look at chapter 3, verse 6, you know, we read about the truth there that Timothy has come to us from you and he's brought us the good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us. You see, the smear campaign really didn't work, right? And so Paul then is very encouraged at this point that they have believed the gospel and not given in. You know, this kind of thing happens all the time today. You know, it just didn't happen in biblical times. I mean, the unbelieving world and the devil... Uh, they don't like Christ and the, and the advance of the church, and so they do their own follow-up. You know, we talk about how we need to follow up with new Christians. Well, the devil and his people follow up with them too, and they're out there trying to discredit and intimidate uh, people who believe in the gospel. And they always do these smear campaigns, work to some degree, because there's always a group of people that are weaker than the rest of, 
and those people succumb to the lies. But as we'll see, God's power is stronger in the end, and on the whole, in a very significant way, especially here as we read about the defense that the apostle gives by just simply saying, look at our lives, and look at our character, and then believe the message that we proclaimed. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 12, and we'll read this beginning of his defense. So he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be, com- to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures this morning in 1 Thessalonians. We pray that uh, you would teach us uh, through the words of the apostle the scripture that has been given to us to teach us and to train us and to encourage us so that we as well can glorify Jesus in our lives and in this church. We pray these things for his sake. Amen. Well, this passage actually provides a lot of insight into the time that Paul and his team had with the Thessalonian church uh, in Acts 17. We looked at that last week. And we're given a window really into Paul's pastoral heart here and is really in a way like no other Uh, in the New Testament, and he's going to continue in chapters 2 and 3 to continue to reveal and open his heart about how he thinks about these believers. And the lesson that we're going to learn is very simple, and that is to follow Paul's example, is that we're supposed to proclaim the gospel boldly and live out the gospel genuinely. That's what we need to be doing as a church and as individuals, to proclaim the gospel boldly and to live out the gospel genuinely. And the Apostle Paul employs three images or metaphors, if you will, in this passage in verses 1 to 12 that are very helpful and actually give us a lot of instruction on how to minister the gospel to people. And so if you look in the verses 1 to 4, we're supposed to be responsible as ones who've been entrusted with a message. So we're to be responsible as entrusted messengers, and you see that come out there in verse 4. Then in the next paragraph in your, in your Bible... It comes out in verses 5 to 8 that we're supposed to be gentle as giving mothers or nursing mothers. And you see that coming out, that image that, that covers that whole paragraph in verse 7. And then finally in verses 9 to 12, you see that we're supposed to be earnest like encouraging fathers. And you see that image put before us there in verse 11, and that controls the idea of that paragraph. And so it's these three images that Paul talks about and how he describes his ministry and his manner of life with them, and as well as his whole team, they were responsible 
as ones entrusted with the message. They acted and were very gentle like a giving mother, and they were also encouraging uh, or earnest like an encouraging father. So let's, let's take a look, a look first at this first image, this first metaphor. The apostle um, embraced a bold and suffering ministry in the, as one entrusted with the gospel. So the chapter begins, right, beginning here, four, because it's based upon chapter one specifically. And the Thessalonians knew his situation. And we know his situation if we read that chapter and we looked at it last week. We know how he was with them. And they also knew what happened right before he got to their city because he told them about what took place. The Thessalonians knew that the missionaries who had come to their town didn't come in vain. I mean, it's pretty obvious. The purpose was accomplished. The church was established very rapidly. And people believed in the gospel and their lives were transformed. And they came proclaiming this gospel with pure motives. The Thessalonians knew that. With, they came with real content that they were preaching. And they were earnest for the Thessalonians that they would actually believe this gospel and it would be for their good. So it's most obvious then that he's talking about his time in Philippi. And considering what just happened, that Paul and Silas were publicly humiliated in Philippi and all without a trial. So you can read that. That's in Acts 16. I'll just read an excerpt for you. The Thessalonians knew about what happened in Philippi. So in Philippi it says, in Acts 16.22, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore off their robes and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, of course, just to jump to the end of the story, it's a long story, you can read it in Acts 16, they do get out, right? God sends an earthquake, and they get out. And you can read the story on, on your own. But the team, you see, is not overwhelmed by this. I mean, just think about the for a minute. That's crazy. I mean, so they, they're in the city preaching, and this crowd starts cr closing in on them. How would that make you feel? And then they get beaten up. And then they get thrown in a prison. And then they get their feet fastened in stocks. This speaks to the genuineness of the gospel that they're proclaiming because they, they declared to, to speak even in the face of this opposition. This is supposed to shut down uh, opposition. Most people would cringe and under this weight. And how can this be other than that the gospel is true? That it's a powerful gospel. It's a sincere message. They believed God's gospel. They lived out His gospel, His good news. And, and God gave them the courage to not cower under these circumstances. See, Apostle Paul is, is appealing to their openness. They knew this. He's appealing to the sufferings that they went through for the gospel, and he even calls God as his own witness. I mean, you see, Paul and his team, their lives were an open book. Their ministry was very public. And right away, he starts calling them by very affectionate names. He starts calling them brothers here. And notice that he says, as you know. This phrase, as you know, in our passage comes up six times. Six times you'll read through there one way or another, one phrase or another, you know this, you know this, as you know, because we told you what would happen in our lives. He had a very intimate relationship with this church in just such a very short period of time. And actually, chapters 2, as it continues, and all of chapter 3, he just continues to talk about their visit, explaining his absence, it reveals his integrity, it reveals this, this loving anxiety he has for them to grow in the faith, 
and all of his intentions are pure and holy for them. You know, have you ever seen such a thing where suffering actually produces boldness? You know, of course, on the mission field, right? You know, we talk about those stories. I mean, I have plenty of them myself, but I remember a couple of them uh, this morning. One, was particularly in South Asia, a colleague of mine had to go to a particular meeting and is supposedly all Christians, but uh, you know how those meetings go sometimes. There's always some infiltrator, somebody with base motives. And so, because they didn't like his position and what he was talking about, somebody went outside and disconnected the brake lines on his motorcycle. And so then he crashed, he survived, was in the hospital for a long time. But, uh, of course, when he was out, he just preached all the more boldly because it backfired on his enemies. And it, and it goes on and on. A lot of my friends in South Asia get threats constantly on their lives and their families. I remember another example. A couple of years ago, we were doing a pastor training event for church planners. And uh, this one young man, probably early 30s, he had a wife and a young child. Uh, so he came out a couple days' journey to the training event, but he had just moved to a new village where he was going to plant a church. And he had left his wife and his young child there. And he gets a call on day two of our training that somebody had broken into the house and threatened his family and stole his property and wanted to know what to do. And the city magistrates, or city magistrates, the city officials call him on the phone to find out what he wants to do about it. It's all an intimidation tactic to get him to leave their town because they want to worship their gods. They don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. So through counsel and prayer that, that week or that day, we, we, we helped him come to a conclusion and he came to his own conclusion. He just called him back, demanded standard justice but nothing over the top for the situation and said he'd be back and then entrusted the Lord with the rest. And God pr protected the family and he went back and continues to minister with even greater boldness in that city. It backfired. But this kind of thing happens all the time, especially in South Asia, these threats, uh, physical abuse, um, constantly, and all it does is make Christians more and more bold. It's amazing. And we, and we have our own stories, too, from North America. You probably have stories of some of your friends, and maybe your life is one of those stories. You know, and we read all this stuff in the New Testament, and we wonder, you know, how will I be in the face of abuse and opposition, smear campaigns even? You see, because they're not always severe situations, like the situation with the Apostle Paul in Philippi, or the, or the situations I just explained to you from, from some of my friends. But it's not always severe. Sometimes it's relatively mild, but it's still real. And smear campaigns are real. And I know that probably many of you in this church have seen God work in your lives over the years and how through prayer and belief in the gospel, He's giving you the power to persevere in the face of opposition, family members who ridicule you, business partners who try to cheat you, whatever it might be, as the enemies go after the gospel and those who preach it. So keep appealing to your life as your number one apologetic. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here. Look at my life. And keep on encouraging one another in this. And the Apostle Paul, not only does he embrace this open, bold, suffering ministry, whatever it costs, his, he and his team also realize that it's an entrusted ministry. That's why in verses 3 to 4, their entrustment that was given to them was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as if we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. So this appeal that he's talking about, our appeal, he's talking about his gospel presentations that he makes to them, that he appeals to them, he, he reasons with them about the gospel and appeals them to believe in it. It's, it's how they proclaimed in this city especially. They persuaded people, and then they strongly appealed to them to believe in the gospel. And you notice how he talks about how his pleading didn't come with three things. It didn't come with error. It means it's true. It came from God himself. They were not being deceiving and making up stories. He, his pleading didn't come with impurity of motives. They weren't immoral in any way, whether with ambition tied up in it or greed or pride. And definitely not sexual motivations, which were common, actually, at the time with many traveling teachers. And if you remember what happened in, in Thessalonica, a, remember the text says, a number of prominent women believed. Very interesting. You could use that in a smear campaign, couldn't you? But he didn't come with impure motives, and he didn't come with deceit, meaning his methods weren't devious. He didn't try to trick people into believing the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. He didn't try to get converts by concealing the cost of following Christ. He told them exactly what it would cost you. He didn't try to get converts by, by promising them some kind of fraudulent benefits, that somehow their business is going to be more successful, or whatever it might be. He didn't go after people with those motivations, those methods. And then we get down to this little phrase where he says that they've been tested and approved. Now, we don't know exactly when this took place, but he's referring to some particular time in the past that we don't really know a lot about much, but that he was faithful and God had tested him and he passed the test. Notice that what we're really talking about here is a test of character. I mean, that's the main idea in our text this morning. He passed that test and he was approved, and so he was entrusted. They were entrusted. They'd proven fit, and they want to be worthy of their calling to be entrusted with the gospel. That's an amazing privilege, and it's an amazing responsibility that we carry as believers. I mean, it's obvious that apostles are entrusted with the gospel. It's pretty clear that missionaries are entrusted with the gospel. That's why we send them. It's pretty clear that pastors are entrusted with the gospel. In fact, our seminary in the Evangelical Free Church, Trinity, that, this is our motto. It comes from this passage, entrusted with the gospel. And of course, all Christian workers were entrusted with the gospel. We speak to Jesus all the time. We speak about Jesus all the time, and teach people about him in, in our communities. Whether we're teaching, you know, children or youth or adults or whatever it is, uh, we each have this calling to be faithful to the gospel and be as an entrusted messenger. We have something to say, and, it, and it's a sense of privilege that we're accountable to God, and that should that should, at one sense, make us very compelled to do it, and also very liberated on the same, at the same time. You know, these, this team didn't uh, just want to please its hearers. They wanted to please God because He examines our hearts, and God always examines our hearts. It's compelling because God's standards are way higher than our standards, and we want to please Him if we have been given the gospel. But at the same time, it is so liberating to be entrusted with the gospel and be accountable to God because you're delivered from human criticism by actually being in the hands of a much more merciful God. Because human criticisms are often just built upon base motivations and irrelevancies, styles and preferences, basically just a bunch of worldly assessments, as if we should assess 
people who preach the gospel to us by worldly standards. Nothing could be more contradictory. In fact, the Corinthian church is a prime example of what not to do when it comes to that. And so these human critics would seek to tear down while God would seek to build up his messengers. I mean, you don't want, do you, a people pleaser for a preacher? You don't want to be a people pleaser yourself, do you? Of course not. And of course it can be abused on the other end. People use this as an excuse to ignore people and not learn. But yet we have to remember that we're ministering always when we speak the gospel to people for their ultimate growth in Christ and their pleasure in God and His glory in it all. You see, the Apostle Paul, he cares so much for us that he gives us an example from his own life and his own team. To be responsible as entrusted messengers and get that message out there. And can you appeal, I mean, bottom line, can you appeal to others to examine your life as proof of your message and ask God to do the same? The apostle appeals to God even in here. I mean, transparency speaks volumes to people about your honesty, about your integrity, about your authenticity, and it actually strengthens you because it's, a, it's also an appeal to God to do more work in you and to give you more boldness. And he will provide the grace so that you can prove faithful as one who's been entrusted with the gospel. You know, the world needs more Christians like this. The world needs more Christians who, who speak the gospel boldly and live out the gospel genuinely. That's what we need. So the first image that the Apostle Paul took us through was that of being responsible as entrusted messengers. Then we get to this model of being gentle as nursing mothers in verses 5 through 8. And so in verses 5 to 6, we learn that we're never supposed to be self-seeking But in verses 7 and 8, we're always supposed to be self-sacrificing. Not self-seeking, that's verses 5 and 6, but self-sacrificing, verses 7 and 8. And so we read here, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So they, did, they didn't do three things. Right? They didn't use flattery. That means to flatter someone is to speak insincerely about something in order to try to gain influence over them. And if you think about what took place in Thessalonica with all these influential people in the city that, would, that were influenced, you know, those people tend to be, I would say, more open to the works of flattery. And just the fact that so many people came to the gospel and to faith in Christ, it was a very successful church planting campaign. They could be open to the charge of just flattering people to try to get, their, get them to believe. And he also, they also didn't cover up greediness. They said, you know, put on a mask to cover up their greediness. And God is called as a witness here again. He alone would able, be able to see this motivation of the heart here. And it's not talking about just money here. It's talking about more than money. It's, it's all sorts of selfish satisfactions to have things and to have certain experiences while they were there. And they also didn't seek glory or praise from people. They didn't want to be popular celebrities. That's not why they came there. They didn't want to be a legend. And of course, if they didn't, it's not that they didn't receive recognition. God would give that to them. But all these things, they didn't come with flattery. They didn't come with greediness. They didn't come to try to gain glory. You see, that was the standard approach of the religious traveling preacher of the day. That's what they would do. The wandering teachers and philosophers and prophets and magicians. The intention of their so-called ministries 
were to build themselves up in one way or another. It's all about promoting who they were. And it's been the same throughout history. Nothing really changes, even today. And, and the most amazing thing to me is that people still follow these people all the time. Never ceases to amaze. And we need to call out false teachers and bad teachers and warn people to beware of these kind of self-promoting religious propagandists that are out there. In fact, one of the easiest ways to find out whether or not someone is a false teacher or not is just follow the money. Just follow the money and see where it goes. Follow their lifestyle. See, the Apostle Paul lives the opposite way. Makes it very clear. We have to encourage people to follow people, not who put on the shows, but people who love you deeply, the people who shared Christ with you, the people who nurtured you in the faith. Those are the people you should be following. You notice the Apostle Paul does add a note here that he indicates he has authority and dignity as an apostle of Christ himself. And this being the case, he could have asserted his authority when he was with them. He could have been a burden to them and demanded payments and all sorts of things, and he could have done so rightfully so. In other words, they could have demanded the respect and given orders, and certainly at times he would, because in other situations it would be prudent and it would be necessary for the church to grow. But then and there, in the city of Thessalonica, because of the situation and all the issues that were going on, which we're going to see as we go through the letter, Paul and his team determined in the Holy Spirit that it was God's will that they conduct their ministry in the manner in which they did while they were there. So they were not self-seeking propagandists like many of the other religious teachers of the day were, but they were self-sacrificing. And we read in verses 7 to 8, he said, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. So instead of being powerful among them, they chose to be meek. We should notice that this is Christ-like behavior, for Jesus was gentle, especially with new and young believers, and that's the situation in Thessalonica at this time, in this context. But, you know, you think about Jesus, he would also act powerfully at times, too, and assert his authority as appropriate. I mean, you think back to some of his words. He had quite a lot of harsh things to say to people. Think back to some of his actions. It's not every day that a preacher takes out a whip and whips people. So, I mean, yeah, it depends on the context. There's a place for both, but it takes wisdom from the Holy Spirit to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, as we'll talk about later. You see, they were gentle among this group of people, and he says, like nursing mothers with a young child, with a newborn. You think about a nursing mother and how she cares and gives constant attention, special protection to her infant, great sacrifice, expresses deep affection and deep love for the growth of a child. It's a really good image to keep in mind. But, but it's also really important to remember, it's not the only image in Scripture. Because, you know, we can over-apply images. This is a constant mistake that Christians make, is they, they find an image for ministry that they like in the Bible, and then they wrap everything up in that one image. But that's misapplying Scripture. We just can't take the one we like and run with it. Because there are so many images that are given in the Bible, depending on the circumstances and what they relate to. There are many operational metaphors about doing, doing ministry. There's three in our text this morning. 
But you see, this is so particularly appropriate to newborn believers that are just weeks old in the faith. Thinking about a newborn metaphor, that's like the perfect one. It's just natural to think that way. And he uses this tender image because he's so overcome with emotion for them. He didn't get to leave when he wanted to. It was like they were ripped out of his arms. And, and so he uses this word here that can't really be translated in English very well, being affectionately desirous of you. It's this really strong emotional word about longing for intimacy with these people who he loved. Even though he was there just a matter of weeks, he poured out his life into these people. They loved the Thessalonian believers so much, and especially because God did such an amazing work there. And so they truly were like mothers to babies in Christ with them. They gave everything to them to guide them. And that's how we feel too about those we're privileged to lead into the family of God. This is how we interact with new Christians. We're gentle and loving. We're not severe and autocratic. That's how you know a false teacher. With new believers, you sacrifice. You don't demand things from them. That's what false teachers do. We seek intimacy and we seek quality time and we want to share our lives and the fullness of the gospel with new believers because now we're in the same family. You see, the Apostle Paul cares for us. He gives us an example of being gentle as nursing mothers with new believers. And it's so true. It's so often when you talk to new believers, they will often talk about one of the most appealing aspects to them about the church that they've joined is the way people interact with them, that they're so loving and caring for them and that they sacrifice for them and serve them. In fact, it reminds me of a good friend of mine who I end up coaching in ministry. He, he's in Eastern Europe and is a church planter. And one particular year early on in the church planning ministry just a couple years ago, his church grew by 25% within one, the first quarter of the year. 25%. Now, of course, it's a smaller church, so it's easier to get higher percentages. But nonetheless, the church grew so rapidly. And so I had an opportunity to go visit him and observe what was going on as he was doing ministry in the city. And everywhere I went and the people I met, they would consistently tell me the same types of stories over and over again about how my friend loved them, spent time with them, visited them at their home, came to their campuses and spoke to them and was patient in answering their questions and sharing the gospel with them. And in fact, I got to see it all for myself because I was there for a couple weeks and we would just travel around together in different parts of the city and he'd take me to some new group he's meeting with and most of them aren't believers. He, he focuses on unbelievers and uh, just answer their questions, find out what's going on in their lives, read a passage of Scripture, discuss it together, how it relates to Jesus Christ, and pray for them. And then hang out and eat food and drink tea, whatever it is, and just hang out with the people. And he would do this day after day after day. In fact, it wasn't just him. The reason it worked is because he trained other people to do the same thing. And so I saw, I got to go to one of his elder training meetings. His leadership training meetings actually is broader than that. And he was training people to do the same thing. And we actually looked at this particular passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we talked about the three metaphors here that are presented by the Apostle Paul and how this approach to ministry works so well. It's so encouraging to see it worked out like that. And he remains, to me, a real model of what it means to actually live that out as a living model, not just a historical example. And hopefully you have living models too. Well, third, after the first one about being being entrusted with the gospel, a messenger, 
and the mother being gentle with her newborn children and newborn believers, we get to the third metaphor about being earnest as encouraging fathers. And so in this section, verses 9 to 12, the first two verses provide a behavioral example, verses 9 and 10. Verses 11 and 12 give us an instructional example. It's what fathers do. Right? They give instructions, and then they behave. Right? And so we see that example here given to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to you while we proclaim the gospel to, of God to you. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So, this is very interesting, because we find that when the apostle and his team were in this city in Thessalonica, they were not a financial burden to the people that they were preaching to. In fact, they labored to the point of fatigue to avoid any sense or any charge of dependency or any improper motivations. And they did so to even some great hardship. Uh, and they even avoided the common system of patronage. Um, and at other times, though, the Apostle Paul and his team, they would do the opposite. They would definitely accept gifts from people to continue to, and in different places, to continue their ministry. Here, it says they worked night and day as they proclaimed the gospel. And they had, at this point, they had already received uh, at least one pretty good sizable gift from the Philippian church. So they had provided that, but it probably wasn't enough to sustain the whole team, and so they had to work. And they took advantage, you know, that's how Paul did it. When he had surplus, he took advantage of the surplus so he could do more preaching. When he didn't, then he'd have to work more, or his team would. And it was common at the time for most people to learn a trade, of course, and we don't know what anybody else on the team did, but it seems that Paul was either a tent maker or a leather maker. But surely the Thessalonians can re re remember all of this. Remember, Paul is still addressing the opposition that's trying to kill the church. And they certainly remember this dedication that Paul and his team had to the gospel. I mean, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul will quote his reason why he worked so hard, like in Acts 20, 35. He says, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words that the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive more blessed to give to, than to receive. And that's why the apostle worked so hard. But when and how to fulfill this pattern or to pick other strategies is a leading of the Holy Spirit, and it depends on the development of the church and the contextual situation. You read about the apostle Paul's, all his journeys, there's a lot of variety in there. Basically, he does whatever it takes to get the job done. What's it going to take in this city to get the church established? Then that's what he's going to do. And later on, he would explain to the Corinthian church, which was a real problem church, and he would say to them in chapter 9, the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So at other times, he would speak very clearly about those kinds of matters. And so Paul calls upon them as a witness, again, and God as a witness, about his behavioral example, how he behaved when he was with them. In other words, this is the kind of thing fathers do and what they're like, good fathers. They're holy, righteous, and blameless. So holiness is a, is a Godward word here. It's speaking about trying to be pleasing to God. Devout, as some of your translations might say. Devout toward God. Behaving righteously means being upright regarding moral standards and how you behave with one another, more of the horizontal situation here, your neighbor. And so Paul was, was devout toward God. He behaved righteously toward his neighbor. And then blameless 
refers to maintaining an untainted reputation amongst the community. And notice that it's toward you believers, it was for their sake, it was for their advantage that they behaved this way because he knew what was coming. He's done this a long time, you know. Smear, smear campaign, yep, typical thing, that's going to come. So, I'm going to live my life a certain way. It was a very purposeful way also of discipling people because you live the example that you're teaching. So regardless of what others would be saying, the Thessalonians could look back and remember and think back and remember Paul's behavior and the behavior of his whole team that ministered alongside of him. And then in verses 11 and 12, we get to the instructional example. And so as a father would, he says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So three things here that a father would do and good fathers do is they exhort, which means they tell their children what's suitable behavior and what's not. They encourage, which means they can be sympathetic toward the situations that you're embracing and bring along proper biblical persuasion on what you should do is right. An encourager. And also charging or imploring. In other words, giving their children a boost when they need it. They need to put more energy into something or focus their attention in a certain direction. So what's the purpose of, of all this fatherly earnestness, all this motherly love, all this faithful stewardship that we see from the apostle? It's all really wrapped up in that final sentence that, that goes beyond just the fatherly one, but addresses all three of the illustrations that have been given to us. And it's so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the God who calls specifically the God who calls them into His kingdom and into His glory. You see, they want the Thessalonians to increase in their spirituality and their skills and their effectiveness to, to live out the gospel, to speak the gospel to people after the pattern that He lived and that He preached. He wants them to be worthy. He also wants the Thessalonians to ponder the ongoing work of God ever since He effectually called them to salvation when the gospel came. Because God is the one who calls. It's another way you could refer to Him in a descriptive way. God is the God who calls. And He constantly has His call upon their life since then. And so He wants them to be worthy of the calling to which they've been called. To be a part of God's family. He wants the Thessalonians to live with dignity and to think through what it means to be a member of the kingdom right now because that's going to affect how you live. If you're going to embrace some kind of an open, bold, suffering ministry, you're going to have to have a sense of internal dignity that's spiritual, that you belong to the kingdom of the king of kings. And the sense that there's a destiny coming one day when he returns, you'll inherit the kingdom. You see, Paul gives another example here about being earnest as, as encouraging fathers. You see, new, new Christians need this, especially. They need living examples. And they need living instructions, constant instructions from people, because they don't know how to live yet. They don't know how to walk with the Lord. And so we want to be ones who keep proclaiming the gospel boldly and keep living it out genuinely before people. So there's the passage this morning. That's how the Apostle Paul and his team answered the smear campaign and address the situation. 
I mean, how about us? How do we address these types of situations? You know, smear campaigns happen in churches quite often today in America. I don't know if you're aware of that. You see, often they contain the exact same accusations. Oh, you know, they accuse leaders of being out for money or power or prestige or sex. Or they accuse leaders of being deceitful, flattery, call them heretics when they're not. It goes on and on. Same kind of stuff. However, sometimes the, you know, these kind of accusations can be really hard to prove. You know, we live in a society where you need proof. But, you know, sometimes you don't need proof to be effective because innuendo, that places the seeds of doubt in people's minds. Very effective. And sometimes, you know, these kind of accusations could just be too shocking because other people know their lives. It's like, no, that's not true. I know this person. That wouldn't be true. And so it often takes on a more sophisticated, spiritually sounding theme. It becomes a spiritual smear campaign. And these kinds of themes drone on for attention in churches. Oh, we're not being loved. Oh, we're not being fed. Oh, we're not being touched by worship. You know, the leadership, they don't lead very well. They don't spend money wisely. They don't really do what's important that churches should be doing, which just so happens to be the thing that I like doing, my pet ministry. Maybe you've been a witness to the work of the devil with people's flesh in this way in the churches before. You see, smear campaigns are always based upon deception. They're just a bunch of lies. And those doing the smearing usually know this, and at least if they had the integrity and the courage to look into themselves, they might find the truth. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of a smear campaign, you know how frustrating it is, how heartbreaking it is how wearying it is because you have to deal with the situation and you have to deal with people and you can never win. Of course, these are largely unnecessary comments for our life together at Calvary at the present time. But this wickedness works so well, so often to discourage and destroy churches, to bring disunity, to sow distrust, to turn people away from the vision of having enjoyable worship and engaging the mission that we shouldn't miss the opportunity to consider this so that we don't get caught unaware at some point in the future. And hopefully you're not one that's being deceived by other people at the moment or by your own flesh or by the devil because, you know, it's always a temptation. Well, the point of all this and saying this is just simply I hope that you can feel what the Apostle Paul and his team might have felt being accused of all these things when they were innocent of all those things. Sometimes, you know, it's not against us directly, but we're stuck in the middle of it because we're in the midst of a community or or a faith community where this kind of stuff's going on. And perhaps it would be very useful for you to counsel others because, like I said, you know, it happens all over the place in churches in North America these days, has for a long time, always will be the case. But there are ways that you can encourage people if they're stuck in the middle of their church and they know a smear campaign is going on, How can they conduct themselves to combat it? So you can encourage your friends, at another church of course, not to listen to these kind of comments, but rather to listen and to reobserve the lives of their leaders and the lives of the rest of the congregation. To look there to find the truth rather than listening to a bunch of slanderers. 
You can remind your friends to, to, you can warn them about certain types of people. These are people that I've observed, certain types. Beware of people who complain, but are rarely able to ever find a, pers- a peaceful resolution to their complaint. Beware of those people who talk a lot about things and against things, but are largely uninvolved. Beware of people who discuss other people's motives and are in an uncaring and thoughtless way. Beware of people who purposefully avoid true intimacy relationships with people in the church. Beware of them. Beware of those who aren't learning but they always present themselves as such a knowledgeable person ready to teach others. Beware of those people who lack any recognized spiritual depth from others, but are just simply discontent and always unhappy people. Encourage your friend to speak directly to these people when you run into them, and speak to them with truth, in love, and in the power of the Spirit, and to address the situation and not let the campaign continue. Encourage them that they're going to suffer for the glory of God, but they can still hope that God will grant these people repentance and they'll come back to a knowledge of the truth. And warn your friends that once you take a stand against the smear campaign, you yourselves are going to probably be the object of it, and you'll become part of it. See, our passage today reveals how Paul minister to people, how he proclaimed the gospel, how he discipled people in a general way. Each letter is written for very specific reasons, and 1 Thessalonians is written, and this particular chapter is written for us this morning to show us these three things, how to be responsible as an entrusted messenger, how to be gentle as a nursing mother for new believers, and how to be earnest as encouraging fathers. And you can pray for this to be developed in yourself, You can pray for it to be developed in your leaders here and your teachers here at this church because we all want to grow in these three things. And this will prevent slander from taking hold. You know, a clear conscience in gospel ministry is a great blessing. And so may we keep ourselves open to review before people and even appeal to our merciful God. You know, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, again, I mentioned a very worldly church, But he wrote in chapter 4 this. He said, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Listen to this. But to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So may we at Calvary Church conduct ourselves in the proper ministry of the gospel, as we've been studying this morning, stewards of the gospel, mothers and fathers to new believers in 2021, because by the Lord's grace and His will, He'll bring some into our lives and into our midst. May we proclaim the gospel boldly and live it out genuinely. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we do thank You so much for 
your word and the manner of ministry that you set before us all with the Apostle Paul and his team to be responsible. And we pray that you would continue to compel us to speak the message you've given to us and to free us up from concern about what other people may think, but to simply live our life in faithfulness and to speak in faithfulness. We pray also, too, that you would develop within us an attitude and a mindset, a heart that is just full of generosity and self-sacrifice, especially for those around us, new believers, young believers who need to grow so that we can be used by you in their life. We pray also that you would develop within us an earnestness like the apostle had to be an exhorter and an encourager, like a good father with people, so that we can help new Christians and young Christians make progress in godliness and and see how this gospel really does work out in our lives. And we pray all these things, Lord Jesus, for your sake and for your glory in this church. Amen. Amen.